It's nearly 50 years since it became illegal to pay women public servants less than their male colleagues if they were doing equal work under equal conditions. In 1972, the Equal Pay Act expanded that to every workplace. But today, for every dollar a man earns, his female colleague earns on average 88 cents. Penny Mackay has been exploring why. Hey, give us a In late June, two to three hundred women turned out in Auckland and Wellington to protest against the government closing the Pay and Employment Equity Unit. And in doing so, to abandon any since 2005, the unit had been leading research into the gap between men and women's salaries in the public service and in the health and education sectors. Disapproval rang out at what protesters said was the continuing gap of 12% between the average pay of a female worker and her male colleague. Current rate, we're going to have fair pay and equality in 475 years. And I don't know about you, but I can't wait that long. A glance at the latest quarterly employment figures confirms that Mr Average New Zealander earns $26.51 an hour. Ms Average New Zealander, $23.31 an hour. About a 12% difference. Examples are common and come from across the entire workforce, from production lines to social work to lawyers. It was pretty much, hey, I've got, I don't know, 50 bucks less than you. <laughs> That's wrong. In 2005, the food processing company Tallies was found guilty by the Human Rights Review Tribunal of discriminating against Caitlin Lewis. She was supplied with small knives and employed as a fish trimmer at the company's Motueka plant. Caitlin's partner, Brett Edwards, was assigned fish filleting, got bigger knives and $50 more a week. The tribunal found the roles were essentially the same and should have been paid equally. Caitlin did have the skills for it, but I was put there because I was a man. Women's groups and the unions say much of the pay gap arises from discrimination. Well, the best body of evidence we've got are the large number of pay reviews that have gone on under the previous government's um, Pay and Employment Equity Plan of Action. Since 2005, the Pay and Employment Equity Unit from inside the Department of Labour has led 85 reviews across all government departments, district health boards and various other bodies from schools to Crown Research Institutes. 18 are unfinished, but of the 67 completed reviews, all but one found numerous glass ceiling type employment issues and pay gaps of between 3 and 35%. Brenda Pilot, the National Secretary of the Public Service Association, says that's evidence of discrimination. Firstly, there are starting salaries, so that issue of women starting at a lower point, and then that follows them right through their careers. Secondly, we've got a lot of discretionary pay systems. Instead of the situation that we used to have when I was a young public servant starting off, where you would advance on an annual basis, your skills brought every year, you get an annual increment, you'd move up the scale. We're much more likely now to have systems that rely on a performance assessment by a manager and a decision about whether your pay moves. That's something that has worked out to be to the disadvantage of women. 
Thirdly, we've got what we refer to as occupational segregation. So we've got increasingly large numbers of women in particular occupations that society in general values less than others. Brenda Pilot believes this happens in numerous workplaces. A 2007 investigation by the PSA and the Ministry of Social Development found the women employees of Child, Youth and Family, who made up the majority of the agency's workforce, earned on average 9.5% less than their male colleagues. If they're on the same grade, they will be earning the same amount of money, but typically women will start at the bottom of a scale and men will, are more likely to be placed somewhere further up the scale. Even if they come with the same skills and the same amount of experience, somebody somewhere, their manager typically, in offering them a job, makes a decision about what are you, what, what's the starting salary I'm going to offer this person based on what I assess their skills to be relative to others. And somehow that all coalesces into women being paid less than men. There's a series of value judgments that go on there. And what will you say if somebody says, well, that's because they have more experience? I think if you look at any individual case, that may be so, but across more than a 1,000 people, it seems to beg a belief, actually, that that could possibly be the case, where you've got 80% of the staff female, that somehow, on average, all of those men are more qualified and more experienced than women. The Ministry of Social Development, which encompasses child, youth and family, has since made what it calls considerable progress in closing the pay gap, which today is about 5%. It's also introduced a new performance management system which tries to ensure consistent and fair progression of staff through the remuneration ranges based on skills, performance and development. When discrimination happens, Brenda Pilot believes it isn't deliberate. It's more likely, she believes, to be the result of an unconscious if ill-conceived judgment on the future productivity of that person. And even university graduates may not be immune from such judgments, as an analysis of the income of people repaying student loans has found. The chief executive of the Ministry of Women's Affairs, Sheena Glazner, explains. Young women come out of university in higher numbers and with better qualifications of men. But within a year, there is a pay gap of about 8%. So women with the same qualifications end up earning less within a very short period of time before all the things like uh, choosing to be at home with children kick in. So we will have to dig further into that and find out more why that's happening because that is an absolute waste of skill when the economy uh, needs all the skills that it can get. Many see the belief that a woman's productivity will be lower than a man's as a remnant of history. Retain a physician to give each woman you hire a special physical examination. This step not only protects the property against the possibility of lawsuit, but reveals whether the employee-to-be has any female weakness, which would make her mentally or physically unfit for the job. This helpful tip was part of a guide to hiring women published in a 1943 issue of Transportation magazine. Give every girl an adequate number of rest periods during the day. You have to make allowances for feminine psychology. A girl is more confident and is more efficient if she can keep her hair tidied, apply fresh lipstick and wash her hands several times a day.
Few today would so blatantly judge the day-to-day -day productivity of a woman simply because of her sex. But a more subtle reason given for sometimes offering a woman less money than a man for the same role or passing her over for promotion is that she lacks experience. After all, many women spend time out of the workforce raising children. But the NZEI's Paul Golter, using his knowledge of the education sector, says years of experience does not necessarily equate to good qualities. Roles, particularly in principals' roles, are very complicated and demanding roles requiring a wide range of skill and knowledge, some of which can be acquired over a period of time on that sort of one year after the next year after the next year basis, but not all of it. Things around professional leadership, financial management, relationships with the communities and the parents' groups, being able to manage large properties. So there's just a wide, wide range of those and it would be very, very difficult to show that just because I've worked, for example, 15 years consecutively, I know better how to do that than someone who's done, say, 12 years in broken service. And then there's part-time work. In New Zealand, 36% of employed women work part-time, compared to the OECD average of 19%. Depending on who you speak to, part-time work is a boon to mothers wanting to combine it with child-rearing, but is unworthy of professional development because it's just a parenting add-on. Or it's the only option available to women who are primarily responsible for raising their children and is an unjust wasteland of low pay, little or no training and few opportunities to advance. Helen Kelly of the Council of Trade Unions says these attitudes to part-timers can and must change. If we are going to have children in the society and care for them and look after them, then we do need to think about more flexible working arrangements and they can work very well. And so employers that try them and are bold about that do very well. Pauline Winter, chair of NACU, the National Advisory Council on the Employment of Women, says the current lack of regard for part-timers hurts not just women and their families, but also companies and the economy. We hear examples all the time of mature women working in jobs that are below their potential or where they access no training and are paid the minimum wage or not much more than that because they need to work part-time and build their work around their family needs. I think at some point we need to, as a country, think very clearly about the race for talent. At the moment the race for talent has slowed a wee bit because of the recession, but sooner or later the recession will be over. We'll all be scrambling once again for highly skilled, experienced workers, whether they're part-time, casual or full-time. The Second World War saw a significant shift in attitudes towards women in the workplace. With the men away at the battlefront, women entered the workforce in unprecedented numbers, and in 1949 the minimum wage for women was set at 70% of the men's rate. Then in 1960, the Government Service Equal Pay Act bound the public service to equal pay for equal work. In 1972, the Equal Pay Act extended this to any workplace. But while equal pay for equal work has largely been accepted, the issue of pay equity is much more complex. Questions? 
In terms of the salary range, you can see from our collective agreement that the role has a starting salary around 47,000 according to... Women tend to start out on lower salaries. In addition to the argument that discrimination plays a part, the Equal Employment Opportunities Commissioner, Judy McGregor, believes some of it also has to do with the way men and women approach salary negotiations. Men's starting positions have a better sense of entitlement about what they deserve and what they're worth and negotiate more strongly than women. A United States study confirms Dr McGregor's assertion. Research found that for every man who said he was apprehensive about negotiating, five women admitted the same. The expert advice to never, never accept the first offer is very difficult for many women. But Pauline Winter of the National Advisory Council on the Employment of Women believes negotiating is such a key skill, women should practice it with a friend. Role play, workshop, whatever you want to call it, to be able to articulate the value that you bring to the workplace. Those types of things are really, really important and to be overlooked because you're not very strong about being able to articulate that is a real problem for many. And Pauline Winter says women's career progress is hampered if they cannot equip themselves properly in performance reviews. We do need those basic core negotiation skills. We need to have the tools to understand our worth and to be able to have that really meaningful discussion and articulate it well. I think we're still hesitant and I think that we're still shy about uh, having that type of conversation. But if we don't have it, we're going to stay exactly where we are. Brenda Pilot from the PSA agrees, saying once a lower wage is accepted by a woman, she set the trend for a lifetime. People come along to a job with expectations about what they're worth and the biggest indicator of that is what they're currently earning in their other job. So if somebody comes along to a department and they're earning 50000 somewhere else, it's their starting point that their new job will be that plus more, preferably. And so the whole thing is a kind of self-reinforcing mechanism, isn't it? You know, men are generally on higher salaries because they start higher and then they keep going. It's a very hard cycle to get out of. Is it also about the choice of professions women go into? Schools, aged care facilities, childcare, nursing. These are areas dominated by women employees. It's called occupational segregation, a term describing the clustering of many women in just a few professions. Research both here and overseas shows female-dominated professions are paid far lower wages than professions with similar skill levels dominated by men. This comparison is done using a scale that weights different skills so that quite different jobs can be, on a theoretical basis, compared to one another. A second investigation into the pay of child, youth and family social workers, men and women, comparing them to the male-dominated occupation of air traffic control was cancelled by the government. But another pay investigation for the Pay and Employment Equity Unit into the wages of special education support workers was completed. I would hope that the government would look carefully at the role that support workers play in the lives of the children that we work with. Veronica is a special education support worker. She puts into practice programs developed by speech-language therapists to help children with communication problems. It's a sector that's close to the minimum wage and Veronica thinks that devalues the job they do. Show us recognition by giving us a reasonable pay rate so that 
you know, we, we feel more valued. External HR consultants matched up education support work with some male-dominated occupations based on similar skills, demands and general requirements. The investigation found the support workers most closely matched corrections officers and the corrections officers were paid up to $8 an hour more. Business New Zealand's Phil O'Reilly says that has nothing to do with education support work being female dominated. Is there work of equal value as prison officers? Well clearly the market says it's not. Prison officers are paid more and I think everybody understands why. Prison officers are engaged in often violent and, and dangerous work. Uh, it's true also that there's a lot of men in the prison service. Well, you can understand why that might be. But Veronica says her job is not without its own demands. Yes, their job is hard, but education support workers do a lot of difficult work with challenging children, so our skills are still pretty high and we should be paid accordingly. Phil O'Reilly doesn't believe comparing female and male-dominated professions can be done and argues that the tool devised by the Pay and Employment Equity Unit to try to is fundamentally flawed. It uses extraordinarily value-laden terms like equal pay for work of equal value. Well, what, what does equal value mean? My equal value might be different to your equal value. So, for example... I might take a particular job because it lets me be home at 3 o'clock for the kids. I might take a job because uh, I like Saturdays and Sundays off. There are a whole bunch of reasons about value that impact individuals. They're actually quite dangerous when you start to try to run the debate across whole classes of employees. Phil O'Reilly has no time for the argument of increasing wages in female-dominated occupations so they more closely match male-dominated sectors. Is the answer to effectively legislate through some well-meaning concept of fairness, for example, or value, whatever those things mean, if the answer is to legislate effectively, to have some rules around that based on those kinds of woolly concepts that are run by a bunch of bureaucrats on the terrace, then I think we're in some trouble as a country. Phil O'Reilly need not worry because nothing has happened as a result of the support workers' pay investigation. Paul Golter of the New Zealand Educational Institute, or NZEI, Veronica's Union, says it had been originally agreed by all parties, including the Ministry of Education, that the findings of the investigation would form the basis for subsequent pay negotiations. We've entered into bargaining around that and, and have taken the uh, pay inequities that were revealed in the report and put them into our claim under the belief that the government would be sufficiently moved by the inequities to um, accept that, and we've just met a stone wall. But the Ministry of Education says it's following government direction that work on the support workers' pay investigation should cease, and it cannot publicly comment on the status of bargaining. Another pay and employment equity review of the wider state school system, which is believed to have made multiple recommendations to fix equity problems, has never been released. We just go through page after page of blacked out statements and really the bits that are left really are really just introductory. Uh, A second report, updating the status of the first, has been released but with most of it censored. Clearly the government's embarrassed by um, what the contents of those reports are. It's, it's our belief that they will reveal systemic employment equity issues inside the sector and uh, very probably pay equity issues in there as well. So the government, in our view, uh, is not going to improve the situation by just sitting on these things, it's not going to go away. Insight wanted to ask the Minister of Education, Anne Tolley, why much of the content of these reports hadn't been made public. But the request for an interview was turned down. The Minister can't take part in the programme 
due to current bargaining. One way of countering occupational segregation that is finding favour with the government is encouraging females into traditionally male-dominated professions. Phil O'Reilly from Business New Zealand sees this as the way to close the gender pay gap without, as he sees it, artificially hiking women's wages. That's the answer, I think, and that speaks to human empowerment to give them those things that they lack. You need to invest heavily there to make sure that they do have some choice. If you can do that, then I think you're staying true to the concept of markets, which I, obviously from a business perspective I will, I will appreciate. But at the same time, you're actually doing something about building the skill set of New Zealand. Sheena Glazner, head of the Ministry of Women's Affairs, confirms it's one of the things a new pay equity program at the ministry will be looking at. We will be working with various educational and employer organisations to make sure that girls, their families and their schools know about the opportunities in trades and there aren't the barriers for girls to go into trades. We'll also look at emerging industries like web design and others to make sure there aren't the barriers to girls going into those emerging industries. Pauline Winter of NACU agrees that good information about non-traditional female working roles is vital. I think schools, business, communities, I think we all have to play a role in making sure that as much information is readily available to people in a digestible way so people can clearly see, you know, if I make this choice it means this, this and this. If I make that choice it might restrict the fact that I might want to do this, this and this. I'm seeing young adult women who still come and ask me for career advice and I wonder, well, why are they in this position at 18 and 19? But even if young women do enter traditionally male trades, they may still have to do battle to be fairly recognised. As Nolene, a senior industrial designer, found out with a previous employer when her manager left and she was offered his role. And they said, oh, we're going to make you a supervisor. And I said, shouldn't I be your manager? Oh, well, we feel that you probably haven't got the experience yet and we'll make you a supervisor. Well, I never got to be a manager. Do you think you did have enough experience? I was doing exactly the same job, so yes, I had. And the money was a disappointment too. They said, well, because you're, you're supervising, you're not managing, we can't pay you the, the rate that a manager would get. And did you argue the toss? Probably now I would, but at that stage, no, I didn't. I was just pleased that I'd been recognised as being capable of doing a managerial job. And I, and I never really thought about how they were effectively um, saying that I was slightly less because I was a woman. So what's the next year or so going to bring? Insight wanted to ask the Minister of Labour, Kate Wilkinson, how much the demise of the Pay and Employment Equity Unit signalled that closing the gender pay gap was not a priority for this government. But the request was turned down. Government policy on pay equity is now being led by the Ministry of Women's Affairs so it would be inappropriate for the Minister to comment on another Minister's portfolio. That portfolio is held by Pansy Wong, but a request for an interview with the Minister was turned down. Thank you for your request to speak to Minister Wong. Unfortunately, your request for an interview has been declined. Brenda Pilot of the PSA is scornful the government cancelled the second investigation into social workers' pay, which was to compare them to a male-dominated profession like air traffic control. She believes the cut was made because there wasn't enough money to fund any consequent pay increases. Imagine applying that logic to treaty settlements. Imagine saying, bad luck Māori, we're not going to do any uh, treaty negotiations because we couldn't afford to fund them. 
I think it, you know, it was a, a disgraceful piece of thinking, really, and a real slap in the face for social workers at Child, Youth and Family. The PSA has taken a complaint to the Human Rights Commission, alleging social workers, men and women, are the victims of discrimination by the Ministry of Social Development because it doesn't pay them enough, and by the government for discontinuing work which could have remedied that. Government departments may not act unlawfully. Ministers may not direct departments to um, break the law. And so if Child, Youth and Family needs to be directed to comply with the Human Rights Act, the um, tribunal has the power to direct them to do so. In light of the reviews for the Pay and Employment Equity Unit, public service chief executives have agreed to try to close the gaps. The Equal Employment Opportunities Commissioner, Judy McGregor, has led the formation of what she calls a monitoring framework to try to ensure the CEOs live up to their promise. It's a transparency and accountability mechanism that will show whether or not chief executives are implementing pay and employment equity. It's about providing a benchmark for those who are doing it well and naming and shaming those who are doing nothing in those departments. Although the Pay and Employment Equity Unit is no more, the government has allocated $2 million over four years for the Ministry of Women's Affairs to carry out further work on pay and employment equity. Many campaigners groan at the thought of more research, but the Head of Women's Affairs, Sheena Glazner, is adamant it's not more of the same. We know about the trades and the fact that women aren't going into trades, so we're going to act on what we know. We'll also have a project which particularly looks at the caring profession and works with providers and employers to see if we can build career pathways for them. Those skills are very valuable but they're not properly valued and they could be transferable to other roles so we need to build career pathways, training and opportunities into those very low paid female dominated occupations. And at the NZEI, Paul Golter says while the government may be silent on it, the investigation into the special education support workers has let the genie out of the bottle. The government is saddled with this report for special education support workers which conclusively proves that pay gap. It, it cannot try and rewrite history the way it's trying to do, so it can't avoid it. And that just gives us a window into what we think are the more systemic issues right throughout the sector. This is Labour's spokesperson on women's affairs, Sue Maroney, at the June protest. This Thursday, she'll present to Parliament her pay equity petition with three requests. To re-instigate those two pay equity investigations. The second objective was to ask the government to commit to implementing the findings of the pay equity investigations that have been carried out. And thirdly, to require the government to come forward with a strategy to close the gender pay gap. We're launching a campaign today, it's called the Pay Equity Challenge, and we're throwing out the challenge to government, we're throwing out the challenge to New Zealand society to, to support our women, to support half the population, to get a fair and equitable wage. That's Sophia Blair of the University Students Association, who was among a number of speakers at the June protest, warning the government that campaigners had their dander up. The CTU's Helen Kelly. Well, the Pay Equity Challenge is a coalition of a number of organisations that uh, work with women workers who have got together to really challenge the government around what they're going to do now 
about Pan Employment Equity because of their decision to close the Pan Employment Equity Unit. So we're campaigning, we had a day of action on International uh, Working Women's Day and uh, we'll be continuing on through this year with activities. Really saying to the government, you've said there'll be no implications of closing the unit, well, start delivering on some improvements. Sheena Glazner at the Ministry of Women's Affairs is aware of the dissatisfaction over the inertia on the pay gap. Women's groups want to see results, to be honest. So whilst they're pleased that it is still a focus, they want to see results. We will work with people to try and make some of these big problems move. History is, however, not reassuring. And with not even the Minister of Women's Affairs willing to take the opportunity to articulate any leadership, to this programme at least, pay equity campaigners may still face a long struggle. That insight was written and presented by Penny Mackay. Technical production was by Katrina Batten and it was produced by Sue Ingram.